Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, comrades. Assalamu alaikum and anything and everything else. Shalom. Uh, I am an LSE baby. My parents met here, so I'm very excited uh, about being here this evening. Um, for, yeah, all right, Neil. That's, he said something very funny, which I won't repeat. Um, anyway, um, as uh, you will be aware, we're here for a progress event. I am um, one of many uh, progress patrons, actually, so I'm uh, very honoured to be able to chair this event this evening um, with a fantastic lineup, as you can see. Um, and I just wanted to uh, say a couple of things about progress just at the beginning. I notice, actually, although I've got about 100 pages, the briefing here. Nothing mentions housekeeping. I like that. I find housekeeping a bit of a drag, but I guess if there's a fire, run. If you need to go to the toilet, do. And um, that's about it. Anyway, um, <laughs> Progress is an independent uh, organisation for Labour Party members and trade unionists. Um, and through the national and regional um, events, as well as all the uh, regular publications, um, Progress really seeks to promote an open debate and discussion around uh, the Labour Party, Labour values and um, progressive ideas and policies. Uh, as you know, we're here tonight to talk about um, the last 10 years and also, uh, hopefully, the next uh, 10 years. It was 10 years ago, uh, almost to the day, um, that we had that amazing uh, electoral victory. Um, I'm sure you're all just as excited about us today as you were then. Um, or if not, you will be by the end of this meeting. Um, so, uh, on that note, I would like to... Um, introduce the first speaker, although I, sorry, I should actually just tell you the format for this evening. Each speaker is going to make an initial contribution of five minutes. When they have 30 seconds left, I will tell them 30 seconds left, and when they come to five minutes, they will face possible amputations and other sorts of horrible things if they do not stop talking. Um, then that, that five minutes, they're going to be talking about the new Labour project, what we've achieved to date, etc., uh, what we haven't, um, those sorts of things. Then I will take um, questions from the floor. We'll at that point be looking ahead and I will then ask the panel to give a three-minute uh, response um, and we will also have some further Q&A. So we do want to make it uh, interactive. We've all got to play a part. That means they have to be brief, you have to be concise. I should now shut up. So I will um, just really um, introduce Anthony Giddens who, uh, well it's apt that you're first up, <clears throat> first on the chopping block really, given that we're, we are here. Um, and uh, as all of you will know, really, um, Anthony Giddens sort of assumed the mantle of uh, philosopher-elect, really, weren't you? Um, and no. I don't know. <laughs> well, no, no, exactly. But elect is before you. Oh, no, I said, oh, right, never mind. All right. The point is that he was one of the philosophers aiming to give New Labour direction. So let's hear. Anthony, did it work? Well, thank you. Actually, actually, my main job was director of the LSE, and uh, it's very good to be back on the stage here. Actually, I was on the stage last night as well. 
when someone called me part of the LSE furniture, which I didn't like too much. Um, I think if you look at the last 10 years, some of the things that have been appearing in the press last a while, frankly, ridiculous. Um, the, the, the only way to look at the achievements of the government and also its failings is by comparing it with other left or centre governments. That's the only way you can get a reasonable assessment. So you have to compare what's been achieved here with what Prodi managed in Italy, what Jospin managed in France, what Schroeder managed in Germany, what Clinton managed in the US. And if you stack up Labour's record besides those, Labour has simply changed their country far more fundamentally than any of those left of centre leaders <coughs> managed. In my view, it's quite easy to um, set out a list of Labour's achievements. I think they're pretty familiar to everybody, but you put them together, they're pretty powerful, really. Very strong economy, 75% of people in work above a decent minimum wage, surely a great achievement. Second, massive expenditure on public services in spite of the problems there are with the psychology of the NHS and the psychology of expectations, all the objective indicators show that the health service, education, other areas of public service have improved massively over the past 10 years from a fairly limited starting point. Third, this has been redistributive government. Um, you've had about over 3 million people lifted out of poverty, quite a few of them children and quite a few of them people over 60, over 65. This is, you know, not far enough. We've got a long way to go, but nevertheless significant achievement. Fourthly, you've had an awful lot of constitutional reform. Devolution to the nations, of course, and who would have thought you'd see those two guys smiling at one another in the paper this morning in Northern Ireland? Who would ever have thought that you would that you would see such a picture and I would defy anyone to say that Mr Blair's own personal in involvement has not contributed significantly to that outcome. Then you've had um, powers to city mayors made a big difference in relation to London, a rather bungled devolution to the regions but nevertheless with something of the right intent, a lot of constitutional reform, halfway reform in the House of Lords, biggest reform though for many, many years of the House of Lords, still needs to be completed in my opinion. You've had signing up to the um, European Charter of, of Human Rights, sorry, European Charter of Work Rights, European Social Charter, European Convention on Human Rights, um, there's been a Freedom of Information Act, um, the government's legitimised civil partnerships. This is quite a significant array of achievements. If you, you can go on because crime has in fact gone down, although a lot of people think it's gone up, position of women has improved significantly under Labour and so forth. The main problem for Labour, I think, at the moment, is not really the resurgent Tories. It's what we're going to talk about in the second part of all this, I suppose. It's the three reasons for disillusionment in spite of this record. They are, I think, the pervading influence of spin, which justified or not, has meant that people just don't believe some of the statistics that the government produces. Second, the simple weariness of the population where the government has been in power for three terms and been around a long while, and third, the elephant in the room, Iraq, and its implications for foreign policy. But I believe there's a really, really strong foundation for Labour to build on. So I, not, I would venture to say not only can Labour win again, but I think Labour will win again. Thank you.
Well, can I try and encourage the other speakers to emulate that performance where I didn't even have to interrupt you. You can tell you... I was about to say not a proper politician. I mean that in the best sense of the word. Um, right. Um, our next speaker is Stephen Twigg. And um, I'm thrilled that Stephen's uh, speaking this evening. Um, Stephen personified the 1997 general election. In fact, he personified... Uh, the Tories' defeat and Labour's victory. I think in different ways we've both personified elections, haven't we? Uh, I'd rather have done it your way, but anyway. Um, so um, Stephen was General Secretary of the Fabian Society, 96-7, before he was elected um, MP. Um, he was Parliamentary Secretary to uh, Robin Cook when he was Leader of the House and then a Junior Minister in uh, the Department for Education and Skills, 2002-2005, before... Uh, becoming a Minister of State in uh, 2004. Stephen is Chair of Progress, has chaired Progress since uh, 2005 um, and is currently Foreign Policy Centre Director um, and also works with the Aegis Trust in their work against uh, genocide. Tony, I've now found your biography, so I might add a bit more about Tony at a later point, but right now, please, could you welcome Stephen Twigg. Stephen. Thank, thank you very much indeed, uh, uh, Una. I think Progress provides a wonderful refuge for defeated Labour MPs with both of us up here. And uh, man, many of you will have, um, will have heard me say this before, but that moment in 1997 was voted the third greatest television moment ever. Uh, the the great, greatest being the uh, first man on the moon. The second greatest being the day that Nelson Mandela was released from prison. And bizarrely, the third greatest was Enfield Southgate 1997. So there you go. Um, I think the great achievement of the last ten years is to shift the centre of gravity in politics towards the left and in a progressive direction. David Cameron now, and we'll move on to the future later in the discussion, David Cameron now has to say that he will match our extra investment in hospitals and in schools. He now has to say that he supports the equality measures that have been passed by Parliament over the last 10 years. He now has to accept the minimum wage. He has to accept the commitments we've made on tackling poverty both here and abroad. Now, we don't believe him, but he has to say that. And that reflects the shift in the centre ground of politics that I think is the biggest achievement of Labour in government over these last 10 years. Linked to that, Tony Blair with Gordon Brown as Chancellor have established a reputation for Labour in government of economic competence. We all remember the days knocking on doors when people would cite the winter of discontent, they'd say we can't trust Labour with the economy, all the lies that the Tories were able to tell at that time. <coughs> that can't be said anymore, and that's a remarkable and I think significant and historic achievement. Tony said that the elephant in the room is Iraq, and there is no doubt that for many, uh, the greatest uh, memory of the last 10 years will be that hugely contentious and ultimately unpopular decision to go to war in Iraq. But I think we should put that in context. A lot of us got our views, certainly in my generation, about foreign policy from the Tories' failures in Rwanda and in Bosnia when they sat by whilst genocide and ethnic cleansing went forward. And I hope as we debate Iraq, as I'm sure we will over the months and years ahead, we don't draw the wrong conclusion and say that it's never right to intervene in other parts of the world. There are circumstances where we not only have the right to do that, we have the duty to do that. And I think the present situation in Darfur is a very powerful example of that. 
Ten years of Labour government is unprecedented. Major mistakes have been made, and Tony Giddens has referred to some of them. We have to have a more honest approach, a change in our style, a change in our tone, be prepared to acknowledge when things have gone wrong. I think one of the failures in the last 10 years is that we haven't rooted everything that we do in our left-of-centre values. I remember when I was an education minister and we would talk about the importance of investing in education. And we'd focus very much on the economic benefits of investing in education, a very important set of arguments about skills and a knowledge-based economy. But sometimes I felt we did that at the expense of the much more powerful egalitarian social justice case for investing in education to give greater life chances, particularly for those from the poorest backgrounds, the poorest families, and the poorest communities. So I think a weakness of the last 10 years is that we've often been too managerial and too technocratic alongside the weaknesses that Tony Giddens identified. But I think despite the bad election results last Thursday, despite the polls, we can have confidence because of our values. And we should also celebrate the achievements that Tony Giddens talked about and make the contrast between the kind of government that the Tories were before and the kind of government that we've been. The Tories that said there's no such thing as society, a Labour government that has a crusade against poverty here and in other parts of the world. The Tories who passed the notorious Section 28, a Labour government that has instituted civil partnerships. And I think if we have that confidence, then we can ensure that, yes, we learn the lessons of the last 10 years, but we build upon it so that we can make further progress in making our society a fairer and more equal place, which I think is what brought all of us in the Labour Party into politics in the first place. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Our next speaker is Mandy Telford. Um, Mandy works for Amicus um, and presently uh, runs a project tackling bullying uh, in the workplace. Um, before that, some of you may remember Mandy because she was the Labour president of the uh, NUS, the National uh, Union of Students, between 2002 and 2004. Um, you've been an activist your whole uh, adult life and you're currently chair of your constituency, Labour Party. Uh, so Mandy, please give us your perspective. Thanks. Thanks, Una. Um, ten years ago, I was a Labour student at university, and on the 1st of May, I spent the day in a windowless room in a sort of bunker in Glasgow, telephone canvassing people in parts of the United Kingdom I've never been to, never mind heard of, telling them to go out and vote Labour. Little did I know, ten years later, the change that would make to the place and the country we were living in. I've done my growing up, essentially, in the last ten years, and I, want, I just want to spend the few minutes I have tonight to explain why that has been so exciting. I'm fresh back from a month in Scotland, spent campaigning with Jack McConnell. Just because it looks like Alex Salmond um, could be the next First Minister in Scotland, don't let anybody tell you that devolution is a bad thing. Devolution will become one of Labour's greatest achievements. Northern Ireland speaks for itself. Having taken power in 1997 with a huge majority, the government was prepared to hand some of it back to the people. 
giving people more control over their lives, giving people easy access to decision makers and reinvigorating communities. We have created a progressive vehicle in Scotland which gives us the platform to come back from this setback, win again and deliver for the people in Scotland. As a woman, I was so proud in 1997 when so many women were returned by the Labour government to the Houses of Parliament. And that has fundamentally changed the political landscape in Britain. Yes, we have more to do. As a party, we have more to do to ensure that our elected representatives do actually represent the communities um, that, that, that people serve. But the fact that the other political parties are now playing catch-up with us has fundamentally changed the political landscape and will continue to do so. It's very, um, there's a danger in a debate like this to um, list things. But this issue um, of women's rights is, is something that I hope you'll forgive me that I do think is important to recognise what the government has done. An increase in paid maternity leave, paternity leave, the minimum wage which benefited over a million women, the new pensions deal um, which will stop women being penalised for taking career breaks and the right to request flexible working hours. It's our Labour government who's changing women's lives for the better. We are moving the equality agenda along. Can you imagine the last Conservative government making childcare, domestic violence or even breast cancer care one of their main priorities? But I'd quite like to focus on the fact that I'm an activist. I'm sure everybody here is an activist, but, you know, I'm not a lord or an MP or a professor. <laughs> but as an activist... Everybody who's been out there in the past month or everybody who's out there regularly knows how difficult it is. It can actually be quite soul-destroying at times, knocking on people's doors. People have become very cynical. But our record in government does mean that we can turn that around and break through the cynicism. People in the 80s and 90s, I would imagine, I wasn't old enough then, um, but people in the 80s and 90s knocking on people's doors would have given their eye teeth to be in our position. So we can knock on people's doors and say, vote Labour tomorrow because of what we have done in your community. Vote Labour tomorrow because of what we have done for you and your family. We have created a culture um, of rising expectations. People will never be satisfied and people want more. And that's hard for us as a party at election time. But as progressives, it's brilliant and something that we should be proud of because we are changing people's lives for the better. <laughs> Our record in government won't guarantee people's vote at the next election, but it does show that we are on people's side. And our challenge now is to break through that cynicism and convince them that we can still deliver for them. I work for Unite now, actually. It's not Amicus anymore. I should have said that. Um, but I run a project called Dignity at Work, which is about delivering dignity for people in the workplace. In 30 seconds easily. And it's all about working in partnership. But to me, seriously, that dignity, dignity sums up the last 10 years that we have had in power. The Labour government leading the way ahead, working with local communities, working with our devolved assemblies to give people the dignity they deserve in their life and ensuring they can achieve what they can achieve. We will go on to the negatives, but I just think when we are celebrating 10 years of power, if you can't be positive tonight, when can you be positive? Thank you.
Thanks, thanks for that, Mandy. Um, and now we're going to hear from Ed Miliband. Um, Ed is the Minister for the Third Sector, which I always think sounds vaguely spooky, if you ask me. <laughs> but <laughs> the third way, right? Okay. Um, uh, based in the Cabinet Office, and um, before becoming that, Ed uh, chaired the uh, all-party group on young people, being one of the only young MPs in Parliament, well, one of the few, um, and uh, he has an older brother that some people talk about, you know, I, I don't know why, when they think David's going to be the next Prime Minister, well, they just haven't heard Ed, but that's your privilege tonight. Over to you. <laughs> Thanks, Una, for that kiss of death for my political career. <laughs> Um, actually, I, uh, I was at school with Una, um, uh, at a local comprehensive in, uh, in North London, but Una was uh, too cool to hang around with me. As someone pointed out to me recently, she still is, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, look, I, I, I'm, I'm really pleased to, to be here uh, tonight and to celebrate 10 years of the Labour government. Uh, there was an American senator called Maurice Udall who, said, who was asked, why does a democratic convention uh, take four days? And he said, after two days, everything has been said, but not everyone has said it. Uh, and I, 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 I will be brief, because I don't want to turn this evening uh, into, into one of those occasions. I, I think there are three ways of thinking about the Labour government's legacy. The policy legacy, the, the institutional legacy, what institutions have we built, and the ideological legacy, which Stephen referred to. And I just want to say something briefly about each of them. I think the policy legacy, and, and people have referred to all the achievements, I think it is incredibly easy, and I, I include myself in this, to forget some of the transformation that has taken place, because it now just feels so much part of the fabric. I was in the House of Commons today, and someone asked the Prime Minister's question about pensioners and pensioners in poverty, and, and he said, uh, uh, he said you know, does the Prime it was a kind of friendly question, he said, does the Prime Minister agree with me that uh, whereas 10 years ago, pensioners were more likely than any other group to be in poverty, now they are less likely than any other group to be in poverty. And I turned to James Pennell, the pension minister, I said, that's not true, is it? Uh, and he said, he said, yeah, it is true. And I, and I, and I tell that story because... Uh, and I said, well, I said, well, what are the other groups? He said, children, families, uh, etc. And, uh, and I tell that story because I think that another speaker in a way referred to this. It's so easy to become blasé about our achievements when you have our opponents out there saying, look, this government has achieved nothing. And you know, there's a reason why they want to say that, which is they want to say progressive politics uh, doesn't work. And I think the policy achievements that we have show that progressive politics does work. My, my second point is about institutions. I think that is, in a way, a very important way to judge governments. If you think about the most successful uh, Labour government uh, uh, that we've had, the 1945 government, it's remembered for the NHS, an institution that has outlived. If you think about the Liberal government of 1906, uh, which laid the foundations for the welfare state and the pension system similarly, what are the institutional, uh, what, what are the institutional uh, achievements of this government which will, uh, which will endure? And, uh, and I think there are a number. Sure Start, in my constituency, has had a transformative effect. In fact, if I had to say what has, in terms of the fabric of my community, had the biggest effect, I would say Sure Start is it. Not just because it provides better services for parents and young kids and so on, but because it builds a sense of community that has been, uh, in a way, destroyed by uh, the closure of the pits in the area I represent. And it's the biggest single thing uh, uh, building uh, a kind of different set of institutions uh, in our community. And when I think about the future of the government, I think we need to take institutions much more seriously. So, 
youth services, something I campaigned on, who to mention this uh, as a backbench MP, I think can have a big effect on communities. Extended schools that are available to the whole community, again, can have uh, a big effect. Obviously, parliaments in Scotland and Wales, um, Mandy mentioned them uh, as well, are uh, important. But the third thing, and Stephen referred to this, which is more important than either of those two things, is the ideological legacy. Where is the centre of gravity of politics? And I think it is incredibly significant that today an agenda around uh, large tax cuts, uh, not caring about poverty, not caring about the environment, and discrimination against gay people, lesbians, uh, black people, etc., is as out, seems as outlandish as some of the stuff that we had uh, in our manifestos in the 1980s. We, that, that agenda... <laughs> that, that, not while you were leader. <laughs> not while you were leader. Now I've definitely destroyed my political career. <laughs> and, and, and I think that is incredibly significant uh, because, because I think that, is, that does testify to the way we have shaped the, the reshaped the uh, consensus in Britain. And now, how have we done it? I think we've done it because we've been willing to go out and argue for progressive politics. And I think, in a way, the single most important thing, uh, lesson that we have to learn for the future is that when we have confidence in what we believe in and go out and argue for it, we actually can win the argument. I think my proudest moment... Uh, being associated with this government was in 2002 <coughs> when we went out and argued the case for the NHS and for raising taxes for the NHS and won the argument with big popular uh, support. Now, it, later on we may get into uh, some of these issues associated with the NHS and other things, but I think, I think having confidence in progressive values is incredibly um, important and it has reshaped uh, the political map. Now, it's all... Sorry. It's also right to say that there are some areas where I think we haven't done enough to reshape the political argument. Child poverty, for example. Uh, crime. Uh, we, I don't think we've won the argument about the causes of crime and being tough on the causes of crime uh, being the key to our criminal um, justice uh, policy. The final thing I would say is this, which is there were some people who expected 1997 to be a big bang like 1945, a massive transformation happening in a couple of years. I never thought that, and that's why I'm not disillusioned. I think this, the, the, the key here and the way to think about this is it's like uh, progressive politics in Scandinavia, which is by having sustained progressive government, which changes the centre of gravity of politics, you can build a very different country. And we have come a long way in 10 years to do that, but we've got a lot further to go. Thank you. And now on to the one and only. <laughs> um, I should say, you know, when I became an MP, uh, Neil, well, the first thing he said was, you're leaving it a bit late, you're 29. I was 27. No, no, no. That, do you remember? That's what you said to me. Anyway, um, <laughs> what he then said to me, he gave me three bits of advice. He said, Una, if you're going to succeed in the House of Commons, you must specialise. Um, he said, well, anyway, I won't go into the... Anyway, he said, you must specialise. He said, um, you must stop swearing, and uh, you must stop wearing micro-miniskirts. And I did two of them. I specialised and I stopped wearing miniskirts, didn't I? But anyway, um, Neil is a fine um, figure of someone who has actually reshaped our party, um, rebuilt our party, uh, saved our party, I would say. His defeat of militant and um, the subsequent reform of Labour Party policy is uh, one of the legendary parts of Labour history. I'm sorry to put it in the history bracket, kind of, but still. Um, it is amazing. Neil is one of my political heroes to the extent that I had to get a job with his wife just to get close to him. Did you ever know that? No, I never said that. Anyway, um, 
Neil, um, after 1992, um, Neil became the UK Commissioner of the European Commission from, uh, well, from 95 until 2004, um, was made a life peer in 2005 uh, and is currently Chair of the British Council. Uh, notwithstanding all that, I am going to stop him when he gets to five minutes, but please, a very big round of applause for Neil Kinnock. I nearly had to get a job with my wife in order to get closer. <laughs> and Mo Udall, by the way, who I, I knew and cherished, uh, also said, and this is upside in the wake of last Thursday, about uh, New Mexico, where he had his constituency, the people have democratically decided the bastards. <laughs> <laughs> Four points about ten years in five minutes. First, I encapsulate many of the positives of the legacy by saying that a decade of rising living standards and low inflation has produced widespread expectation of durable, stable affluence. That's unprecedented. None of the spasms of advance experienced under previous post-war governments have been long enough or strong enough to produce the embedded feeling that growth with stability is the normal, resilient condition. That feeling is obviously not universal. It can't be. But it is commonplace. It's at the core of the legacy. And sustaining it is a basic component of the challenge of the next five years or more. Second, associated with that are other expectations which are largely related to public services. They are articulated more clearly than ever, and they are focused much more on prosaic quality than on abstract choice, much more on good standards that are guaranteed than on competition as a spur to improvement. The huge increase in health spending and in achievements is a great advance. The greatly reduced willingness of the public to submit to inadequate standards of provision is real progress away from deference and it is a creditable part of the legacy. The public frustration when massive extra investment fails to present weaknesses, prevent weaknesses in services is also part of the legacy. Remedying that is probably the biggest managerial demand on government over the next few years. Third, the external legacy should be manifested by broad satisfaction with actions such as sustained efforts to combat world poverty and death, late but conclusive intervention in the Balkans, the rescuing of Sierra Leone from mass murder, and other initiatives which require decency, generosity, and real leadership. It's a tragedy that for some time at least those substantial accomplishments will be outweighed, if not obscured, by the nature of the association with George Bush and the consequent quagmire of post-war Iraq. Getting away from that without abandoning the duty to assist Iraq towards normality is the predominant challenge of the next three years or less. Fourth and finally, New Labour rightly sought 
to prove its freedom from ideology. Regrettably, in the course of doing that, it's given the impression of neglecting values too. It's the wrong impression, but it is now part of the perceived legacy and parties live or die by perceptions as much as they do by substance. There is a deep irony in this part of the legacy. It is that Labour has no shortage of big, tangible, progressive, beneficial accomplishments. But they are seen by much of the electorate merely as deserved technical advances gained by clever arithmetic, not as a result of consciously applied convictions of care, opportunity, security, <coughs> justice, and freedom. That is politically costly. When supporters and potential supporters are not shown the direct connection between achievements and the values that motivated those gains, they lose heart, they lose trust. The party loses distinctiveness and inspiration. And the task of opponents who want to caricature Labour as opportunistic and detached from principle is made easier and cumulatively sections of the electorate heed them. Counteracting that pull away from Labour does not and must not involve preachy doctrine. It means emphasizing the proven positives of the legacy, reversing the negatives, and crucially, repeatedly making the convincing link between what has been achieved and in practice and the principal reasons why such productive outcomes were deliberately pursued. All of these tasks are demanding. I believe we are about <coughs> to elect a leader of the party who can provide the stimulus and the guidance needed to fulfill those tasks. I was so gearing up to be strict with this panel, but didn't get even one opportunity to hack them down mid-sentence. Maybe you could do that, though. So could I see a show of hands, um, questions relating to what we've just heard, the last ten, not the future. We're going to go, go, move on to the future. That's good, isn't it? Um, I'll start with the gentleman up there, and I will come down if people can keep their hands up. Thank you. Yes. Can, can you shout... And sorry, and, and your name and, and if relevant organisation. My name is Francis Durham. I've been a, a member of the Labour Party, not the New Labour, a member of the Labour Party for 10 years now. Ten years on, I'm rather proud to say I'm one of the cynical uh, number of people uh, thinking about the Labour Party. Right, I've got a microphone now. Um, I am... Uh, I, I, been reading David Blunkett's uh, missive here and it says Britain today is a country transformed from those dark years of Tory rule where selfishness and greed were the political mantra. Excuse me but are we not the preferred 
Sorry, that's not me. I don't know who's doing that. Who's doing that? It's your heartbeat. But it does give me an opportunity to say, David Blunkett was never that brief. Can, can well, you make I, it right, quite brief? I want brief? to be brief. Are we Thank not you. the preferred country for the extremely wealthy and avoiding taxes for income they receive from abroad? I think we are, and I think we have become incredibly selfish over the years. To hear the panel uh, you know, saying everything is rather lovely is just really nonsense and I just don't believe it. It, it, it. What has happened with the Labour Party with New Labour is an absolute disgrace. I would just like to say about uh, Iraq, we're now on one million people died there. Isn't it great that the majority of those people aren't white ethnic or else we'd certainly be concerned? And may I just say... I okay, think, can you... Francis, I I, the reason I don't want to cut you okay. off is because you're talking about Iraq and people might think that's because I have a different yeah. YouTube. That's not the case. There are a lot of people got their hands out here. So yeah. can I give you another 10 seconds, yeah. please? I, I just want to say the Prime Minister who's led us down this road, I think it's absolutely obscene that uh, one hears... That's that one hears that Okay, he I tell you what, Francis, I've got it. We are obscene. I've got it, I've got it. £100,000 for an Okay, thank you, Francis. And that's fair enough. That's fair. You know, broad church, broad mosque, whatever you want to call us, that's fine. Um, I, there was somebody, that, yeah, the gentleman there in the tie. I'm going to be looking for some women. Are there any women that want to say anything, just for a laugh? Good, there's one up there. Okay, we'll take the gentleman down here first. Uh, thanks. Um, uh, Chris Fegan, Chelmsford CLP. Um, just to, to say a bit of contrast to the previous speaker, um, I think I agree with um, most of the panel that we have made major achievements, though that's not to say that everything we've done I totally agree with, but we have made major achievements. Um, but uh, I'm slightly worried, um, despite the fact that uh, we're moving into a new era of, of one particular issue, which is the election results last year at 26% and the election results Thursday at 27%. For instance, Chelmsford, unfortunately, we lost our last two Labour councillors and we're down to zero. And we're not the only one uh, in that position in Essex and elsewhere. What concerns me... Specifically, and Chris, sir, if we can be brief, right, yeah. Is, is the opinion poll showing that 67% of the public see us as a divided party? Now, everyone knows that divided parties do not win, regardless of anything else that happens. How does the panel see us, us rectifying that perception, as Neil says, is important, of we are divided? Now, it's a massive figure, 67%, and it, it spells danger for me, great danger. Uh, Chris, thank you very much for that. Uh, there was a woman indicating there in the middle row. Um, a microphone might reach you, but if you just start shouting... Oh, it's yeah, there already. I've got it, thank you. Um, Jenny Westaway from the Fawcett Society and also Hope the St Pancras CLP. Um, what I wanted to ask was uh, to what extent the panellists think that, in a that the Labour Party in the last 10 years has been able to articulate the fact that inequality is really at the heart of what all of us believe in the party and to what extent it could be the, the kind of coalescing factor for the next 10 years. Thank you for that Jenny. That was a brief question I really appreciate. The man behind you there. Anyone over there? Right okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, John Young, a member of Progress. Uh, in the 1997 manifesto uh, there was a commitment to hold a referendum on proportional representation where is it, please? Oh, good question, John. Um, the gentleman at the front row of that, I am trying to keep my beady eyes around here. 
Yeah, thank, uh, Tom Marchbanks. Thanks for the, the, pros, the quick pros and cons there. My question is, how does the accusation that, uh, in fact, uh, the gap between rich and poor has actually increased over the last 10 years sit with the panel? Um, right, okay. And uh, if we can have the gentleman down here, please. Fred Jarvis, I agree um, very strongly with what Neil said about parties living or dying by perception. What we have to ask ourselves is why is it that in spite of the achievements that have been rightly uh, drawn attention to, the perception of the public now is an altogether different state of affairs. It's not just a matter of overdoing spin, there's sleaze, there is incompetence. Today we hear five billion pounds lost on tax. Well, this is a colossal sum. What do the public think of that? What do the public think when a Labour government or number 10 is rejoicing at the victory of Sarkozy in France when we holiday with the likes of Berlusconi? Quite apart from what Neil said about rubbing up the bush. These, these are make it tragic that real achievements are overshadowed now in the public mind and why we're now so low in public esteem Last week's defeat, a springboard for success. A hell of a lot has got to be done to overcome that. Fred, thank you for that. Um, can I take the uh, lady... Well, I won't say Rachel, because that would imply that I know you. Um, <laughs> in fact, from now on, I'm just going to say the lady, the gentleman, even if you're my best friend. Okay, so, uh, Rachel. <laughs> Uh, Rachel Saunders Bethelgrew and both CLP. Um, I was going to ask, I know a lot of people who rejoined the party recently because they're really energised by the idea of participating in our leadership and debt leadership elections. Um, what can we say to those people to keep them in the party, to stop them from leaving again, especially as we know, you know, regardless of anything else, a lot of people don't renew their membership after the first year that they join. Um, what can we say to them, especially in terms of, kind of long-term involvement in exciting bits of party democracy? Okay, can I just see everyone's hands again? Just to re the ones that I still haven't called. Right, okay. I'm going to try and get those people in. Can no one else put their hand up? No, you've got another round coming. Got another round coming after this. So the gentleman up there. Hi, my name's Toby. I'm a journalism student. Um, Rorark's been referred to as being the big uh, white elephant this evening. But surely the real white elephant is the biggest issue of our time, which hasn't even been properly mentioned this evening, and that's the environment. Um, in decades to come, when Iraq's just, uh, just a portmark on the face of political history, how will people look at what has actually done about the environment, not what it said it's going to do, or what it's signed up for, but what it's actually done? Thank you for that, Toby. Um, uh, I'll take the gentleman at the very end. Yeah, you with the pen in your hand. Yeah, a couple of quick points. Um, thank you very much. Um, we talked about celebrating... Sorry, your name. Neil, sorry, Neil Nerva, a member of Hampstead and Kilburn and Queen's Park in London. Um, we talked about success, and we were all really proud of those successes. There's also an opportunity to, I think, express disappointments. And I'd just like to talk about the fact that we've become the promoter rather than the manager of markets throughout the social sector that we lost an opportunity not to reform the voting system to ensure a right-wing party would find it very difficult to take power ever again, and certainly not on 40%. And finally, this point about the environment is a real question. And I'd like to know what would we have done differently if we were living 
in May the 1st, 1997, with 2020 hindsight. Thanks very much. Thank you for that simple question, Neil. Um, Those hands again, please. Right, okay. Uh, Can I have the lady down here in the turquoise? Yeah, thank you very much. I'm Monal Quady from University of Westminster, MA student. Actually, my question is related when Tony Blair mentioned that there's no more foreign policy and domestic policy. They are all together. But my question is related to the image of the United Kingdom after this great alliance with the United States and whether there are in the future, labor future, would be any changes than this um, deep alliance with the U.S. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, gentleman in front of you, sorry. <laughs> Um, it's clear that over the last... Oh, sorry, I'm Arya Kovler. Um, no one in particular. <laughs> sorry, I can make up a title if it makes it more interesting. Um, uh, the, over the last ten years, it's clear that there's been like, an immense uh, development of the social agenda and a real kind of progressive trend inside the social agenda. How much of that did the panel put down to New Labour and how much of that is down to just a general advance in the world of the social agenda? For example, civil partnerships appearing all over the world in different forums. Thank you very much for that. Uh, The lady in red at the top. Thank you. Rachel Langton, member of the public. You've mentioned... (laughs) 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 Um, You mentioned the word spin. Something that concerns me is the influence of the media. And I wondered, are there ways that you can counter that? Because I do feel sometimes it's very negative, although often it is justified. Thank you for that question on spin. I'm going to take three last questions here so you can all just hate my guts, the people that I don't point to. Uh, The gentleman up at the top there, then the gentleman here, and the gentleman there because I can't see any more women. Uh, Stephen Hans, member of Battersea CLP. Um, A common critique of this government is that it was too timid in its uh, early years, and I wonder how much truth the panel believe there is in that and how that manifested itself. Thank you for that. And then we had two... Could you put your hands up again? Yes. Oh, no, look, you're all trying to slip in there. There's about five hands gone. Oh, yes, you, sir. Uh, Norman Record. On this question of inequality, we've done a, a, a great amount at the bottom end, but we've allowed the top end to just spiral away. In, 19, uh, in the year 2000, the remuneration of the top executives in the top 100 companies was 38 times as much as their average employees. <coughs> in 2006, it was 98 times as much. I asked this question of Ed Balls last year, and he said, well, that's the market. There's nothing you can do about it. In my opinion, markets must be controlled. Thank you for that. And um, Can we get a microphone to the gentleman in the middle? If you could put your hand up. It's coming this side. talked about uh, legacies. One legacy I would like to see go is the style and the governance style legacy of Tony Blair. <coughs> We've suffered far too much by too much spin, too much sleeve, the denigration of cabinet government and the undue reliance on outside advisors. Uh, the most example, the awful example today is to hear that Tony Could you speak used, loudly, please? Tony used Lord Burt as a hatchet man to get it all in brown. I think we've had a, 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 a slow, slippery slope of going away from the ideals of the party and the legacies we are creating to the way we do it. And I hope we can have a fundamental change in the leadership style of the new government. Okay, asking for a fundamental change in the leadership style. Um, 
Right, can I just uh, explain what's going to happen now? Uh, <laughs> yeah, because the panel are wondering how they are going to answer all these questions uh, in three minutes each. They're actually going to do more than that because what they're going to do is they're going to choose the couple of questions that they can answer um, and they are also at the same time going to give us... It's like a bad exam, isn't it? going to give us their looking forward because I've been a bit of a bad chair. I've given um, over twice as much time to the floor as I was meant to on this piece of paper so we're going to have to try and uh, catch up there. So just to recap what I'm asking of panel members, I'm asking them to attempt to answer a couple of the questions uh, which they will choose at their discretion and then also in a uh, three and a half minute slot (laughs) asking them to um, tell us what they hope uh, the changes might bring in the future, what we're looking for over the next 10 years. Everybody understand that? No? Good. Excellent. Um, I am going to ask the professor, the good professor. Oh, don't call me. Uh, <laughs> okay, Tony. This is the only country in the world being called professor is a terrible insult, honestly. <laughs> My it's dad. No is other it? country <laughs> does this happen. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, <laughs> Lord Professor. Yeah, we got it wrong. <laughs> Lord Just Professor. Oi, mate. Okay. <laughs> um, if you could give it a go. Yeah, I'd like to respond to the first questioner because even though he went on a bit, I think he articulated quite a lot about what people feel, and I feel much the same. That is, I think it's no, in the future, it will not do just to leave the rich alone. The the super rich should support the super poor, in my view. And I think, actually, we should be thinking of policies of of how to do this. I mean, what I suggested in this book I just wrote um, is that... (laughs) Give give us a plug. What's it called? No, no, no. I'm not here promoting it. We might want to go and buy it. I'm not promoting it, but it's only (laughs) £9.95. In all good bookstores, and it's called Over to You, Mr. Brown. Well, in this book, I argue Labour should consider a wealth tax, which would be hypothecated, to be spent not by the Treasury, but spent directly on poorer children. I think we should be doing other things. For example, we should be closing down more effectively some of the loopholes for tax breaks. Um, We should be encouraging a better culture of philanthropy with even more radical tax breaks. I mean, in this country, 0.7% of GDP, if you'll forgive me being professorial, is is due to philanthropy. In the US, it's uh, 1.8%, so it's well over double. You know, the theme, no rights without responsibility, should not only apply to the poor, it should apply with even more force to the rich. Um, Second... Second, I think the issue of Iraq is a very, very real one because I think this is one issue where people have lost, not you know, trust in Labour, not just because they disagreed with the war, because probably unlike many people here, I felt quite ambivalent about the invasion. Really, I thought it was difficult to decide because there was plenty of good reasons why Saddam would have to be confronted. But I think Labour now tends to refuse to admit that Iraq is a debacle, it is a disaster. And I think that that really has to be admitted. And I think if I can now go on to what should happen in the future, well, working backwards from foreign policy, um, I think Gordon Brown has to stick to a timetable to move the troops out of Iraq. But 
recognize that's nowhere near enough. We have to have an international plan to sustain peace in Iraq. It has to involve the surrounding states. We have to persuade as far as possible for its last two years the noxious Bush administration to um, play a part in that. Well, I was going to tell my George Bush joke since everyone is telling... I better not. Everyone is telling... <laughs> oh, should we let him? Yeah, go on. Well, go I mean, there are loads. I really love these George Bush jokes, right? So... <laughs> George Bush and, and Einstein and Picasso by some quirk of the time dimension all die and go to heaven together. And uh, Picasso's up first and St. Peter says to him, how do I know you're Picasso? So Picasso draws this fantastic picture, you know, 30 seconds flat. And St. Peter says, okay, come on in. Then Einstein is next up and he says again, how do I know you're Einstein? Well, Einstein draws this, you know, terrific formula. 20 seconds flat. Yes, you're Einstein. Come on in. And up comes George Bush, and uh, St. Peter says, well, George, I'm going to have to ask you the same question as I asked Picasso and Einstein. And George Bush says, who are Picasso and Einstein? (laughs) (laughs) St. Peter says, come on in, George. (laughs) Anyway, um, you know, I, I think it's really important that Gordon Brown speedily gives a strong speech on foreign policy. I don't think he's done that yet, but, you know, this is a different world after the Bush administration. This is a world where American power has shrunk, where everyone can see that the military might of the U.S. does not even allow it to pacify one country, and where American moral power has been largely undermined. It's going to create a more multipolar world, but unlike people who want that world, I think that world is likely to be more dangerous. So... I want Gordon Brown to push strongly and firmly for a return to multilateralism, but as Stephen said, without discarding the principle of the possibility of active invention, in intervention. It's really important that we don't altogether throw away that principle as a world community. Um, just continuing quickly. Briefly. Okay, we must have ideological renewal in the Labour Party. I'm in favour of a more robust notion of the public sphere, more upfront egalitarianism, which I don't think has to be returned to the old left. New ideas, innovation, if I can put it this way, aspiration, innovation, perspiration, that will get us done. <laughs> uh, and now Stephen. I'm sure everyone will be pleased that the five panellists aren't answering all 15 questions, or we'd be here here till midnight. Let me just answer a couple of them. There are a couple of questions around the perception, how Labour's seen, and the kind of governing style. And I think someone referred to to Tony Blair's choice of holiday partners. I can't see Gordon Brown holidaying with Sarkozy, so I think we can be reassured on that point. But I think there's a very serious point about the style of government that isn't just about the last 10 years, actually goes back much further. And I think there's a number of important reforms that I hope we will see and could see quite quickly, one of which is about the restoration of the importance of Parliament as an arena for political debate. I spent a year uh, working with Robin Cook when he was starting a very important process of modernising the House of Commons, and some progress was made, but frankly, it was pretty limited compared to the scale of what's needed. So if we can see that, I think that would be an important symbolic change. Someone mentioned the environment, and I think it's right that if we were here 10 years ago, the big issues 
the pledge card, the priorities in the manifesto, there wasn't the kind of focus on climate change and the environment that there is today. And in some ways, we missed a trick. We've done some good things, but we haven't done enough. We gave in when the fuel protesters came along because we feared that they reflected public opinion. We didn't use the power as much as we could have done to persuade people of the utter seriousness and urgency of the challenge on climate change and the environment. Someone asked about the social agenda and was this down to the government or was it down to social trends? And I think it's a mixture of the two. And clearly there is a a development that's going on that is to do with more confidence in society and to some extent government responded to that. But actually when we were putting through a lot of those measures like the Equal Age of Consent, um, civil partnerships, anti-discrimination legislation, in most of those votes the Tories were voting against. And sometimes they're voting against on a three-line whip. So yes, there is a social trend, but I think the Labour government can take some credit and Labour MPs on those votes take some credit for that very important set of social changes that frankly, certainly on LGBT issues has transformed the situation here compared to 10 years ago. A couple of questions about voting reform. I think it would have been a good idea to have that referendum. That's always been my view. I think those of us in the Labour Party who favour a more proportional voting system have to accept we are in the minority within the Labour Party on this issue. But Um, what a minority. (laughs) Come on. Thank you, Una. Um, It was said in the... um, in the independent report on voting reform that parties' willingness to countenance voting reform tends to be in inverse proportion to their ability to do anything about it. And I fear, perhaps, with things getting a little bit more difficult for us, the issue might move back up the agenda at precisely the time that it's more difficult for us to actually do anything about it. I think that was a missed opportunity. I think we've done a lot of other very good things on constitutional reform, but I would hope that we can return to the issue of Parliament that I referred to at the beginning, and perhaps also the issue of voting reform because I think there is a basic issue there that is about justice for every voter and making every vote count. Ed. Uh, thanks. Uh, great questions and very difficult to answer. On, on inequality, let me talk about inequality first. Uh, look, in a way, if you ask me what's troubled me most about the last 10 years, it's that we haven't done more about inequality. Now, I think you have to be slightly careful here because when you look at what has actually happened, um, uh, for example, between the top 10%, bottom 10%, actually we have made some progress uh, on inequality. It's true that the gentleman made the point about the the very richest moving away uh, from the rest. Ed, Um, I'm really sorry. Is Ed's microphone working? Can everybody hear at the back? No, No? yes, maybe a bit louder. Okay, sorry about that. Um, I wouldn't say it all again, but so I'm, I'm troubled by that we, that we haven't done more on, on inequality. Um, the thing I would say about this to the, to the people who asked about it is that there are a number of imperatives here. We have to keep a political coalition together, which allows us to win elections. <coughs> that is important because we can't do anything about poverty or inequality if we're not in power. Uh, secondly, we live in a much more global economy. Now, it doesn't mean to say that there's nothing we can uh, do about it. And I do think it needs more of a focus in the years ahead, and I do think we need to be talk about it more. Um, because if you think it's a problem, you should talk about it. And I don't say I have an easy answer to it, but I think it should be talked about and, and discussed. And I actually think what we've done on child poverty uh, actually is a massive contribution to tackling inequality um, because we have, a, we have a relative poverty target, and that is all about inequality. Do the bottom uh, group in society, do they have 60% of income compared to the uh, people in the middle? But, but so it's a problem that we need to, to tackle. The second thing I would say is about style of government. Uh, and as Stephen mentioned powers of parliament, I think that's absolutely right. I think the other thing we have to say is it's about the style of politicians, and I include myself 
uh, in this. After you've been in power 10 years, and in a way you got this from the panel when we talked earlier, the instinct is to say sort of we're right and the electorate's wrong, and that's not really a very good uh, approach. Yes, we've done a lot well. There are some things we haven't done as well. People talk about the situation uh, in Iraq. I think also uh, our ability to not just invest in public services, but as we implement reforms, hold public sector workers uh, with us, for example. I see people in my constituency who, for whom globalization and migration are massive issues, and in a sense I don't feel we talk to them uh, enough about those issues. And that's not arguing for a right-wing position uh, on migration, but it is arguing for a position which addresses their concerns and says that we get their concerns. So uh, style of government, yes, incredibly important. Institutional <coughs> change is part of it, Parliament uh, being strengthened uh, in relation uh, to the executive, but also uh, style of politics. And, and I, think, I think partly the other thing, uh, the final thing I would say about this is that there, is a, there was a new Labour uh, kind of style that got us into power, which was about message being on message. How many times have we heard um, uh, that phrase and all that? And actually, that is a style which belongs to the 1990s. It doesn't belong to the 2000s, partly because actually people are more intelligent than they offer, often given credit for, and you need to level with them and talk to them honestly about the challenges and dilemmas you face. And I think that is a very important part of uh, winning back people's trust. Thanks. Um, Mandy. Um, it's always a, a problem going forth. Um, I think Ed has just summed up almost exactly what, what I was about to say. Um, having, I mean, I just keep saying this, but being fresh from the doorstep and feeling quite battered and bruised, sometimes knocking on people's doors, especially in Scotland, you know, that, that, that upset me. Um, the legacy of style has to change. The perception of politicians has to change. And with that, the perception of the Labour Party has to change. A conversation needs to be had with all three um, of, of those parties, if you like, to make sure for the next 10 years we are, we are leading forward with the policies that the public want, with the policies that the party believe in, and it's being delivered in a way that the public believe that we can deliver for them. As we've just been said, Tony Blair's style was great. It got us elected and it got us a long, long way. We need a new style now. It is, it is time for um, something different. People are getting bored. People are getting far too cynical of the style that we have. Do you, at think, the do you think Gordon Brown is different enough? I think Gordon Brown is very different in his style to the Prime Minister. And I think people are looking for less spin, less um, of, of a sort of showman. Yeah? I think Tony Blair's great. Go to his speech, even if you don't agree with what he's saying when you go in, you'll probably agree by the time you come out because he's absolutely wonderful at what he does. But I think Ed's right in that people want actually a genuine conversation with, with the public. This is what we're going to do. It might be tough, but we're going to do it because this is what the Labour Party believes in. Let's start standing up for our values and explaining why, why we do that. And that links in, I think, to Rachel's question about how we convince people to stay in the party. They're joining because they want to vote um, in, in the elections that, that are coming up. Well, when they're joining, let's give them a party that they can shape. Let's give them a party that they feel that they can actually take control of and make positive change in their local communities. Thank you very much for that. And now Neil. 
fine. If I can use a, a term which I gather is fairly unpopular this evening, to be fair to Tony Blair. <laughs> when, uh, and there's much to be fair about. Last Friday, for example, when he spoke of a springboard, what he was trying to do was to raise spirits of a devastated party as a job of a leader and uh, to say it by drawing a comparison with the way in which we virtually eradicated the Tories in the local elections leading up to the 1992 general election and damn it, major one. This happened repeatedly through the 1980s. In fact, our advance at local level, European elections, was incessant even when we lost elections in 87 and 92, where there were local elections on those days, we wiped the floor with the Tories. And we got them down to below the level that was secured by Labour last Thursday. Now, don't anyone make the mistake of thinking that the departing leader was simply being airy about this. And for God's sake, in this audience, don't join the rest in sniping in circumstances where we should be gathering our strength and reordering ourselves in preparation for a massive change with a new leader from which we have got to advance. Now that will require some self-discipline. And some of the habits that we've got into understandably, naturally, in recent years, as people have felt deep depression, despair at Iraq, and other occurrences of a greater and lesser dimension, that habit must now be controlled and put behind us. We've got to go on the attack. And I mean we. This isn't one guy's job. It's not a cabinet's job. It's not a parliamentary party's job. It's the party's job, the movement's job. Indeed, swathes of progressive people who value the advances and changes in social temperament over the last 10 years and don't want to see a retreat under the PR manufactured camera on. <laughs> they must be enabled to understand that politics is about choices. It's not a choice between perfection and the devil's work. It's a relative choice. And we have got, because nobody else will do it, we've got to make sure that the citizens of our country understand the advances that will be further undertaken under Labour, with Labour, and the retreats, the withdrawals, the deprivations that inevitably come as a consequence of the application of conservative ideology. It's our business to do that. We need help in doing it, obviously from a leadership that has got to connect accomplishments with principles, achievements with values, and be bold about it. I'd like to hear the term democratic socialism again, especially not for reasons of a slogan, but simply to demonstrate that an inspired government applying democratic power can achieve what has been achieved in the advance of stable affluence, in investment in health and education, in the serious sustained challenge to family poverty, and that the ideas and ideals which were put into effect 
by people with that elective democratic power, not perfection again, not undertakings by super people, not the building of utopia, but the incremental and practical implementation of ideals. We want them to make that connection and be proud and bold about it. Now, can I say one last thing about the most testing questions? At the end of the first 10 years of Labour government, and they are the questions that related, obviously, to inequality, Jenny asked that, how do we combat it, between the statistically and manifestly increased gap between the very top and the bottom, and the whole issue of the multiplication of the difference between the top paid and the average paid in their companies. Now, some of the answers are straightforward, pragmatic. They require persistence and endurance. They're what I call, and I recommend you read Tony's latest book, because it <laughs> illustrates the point with great force, what I call the Nordic Convention. And it involves keeping on lifting the bottom incomes by the variety of means that are employed. It means keep on sustaining employment by the variety of means, many of them innovative, that are now used in the United Kingdom. Keep on investing in education, training, and families, because over a five to ten year period, as the Irish have demonstrated in close living memory, this is the greatest source of transformation of the general fortunes of the community of so-called ordinary people. But persistence is necessary, and it is only possible with the return of a Labour government. And if we're going to narrow that gap, which has grown between the very top paid, the accurate statistics given by the gentleman in front here. Maybe a couple, maybe a minute. This is the best finish. speech I've ever heard. I, I mean, finish. go on if you want. I'll do it very, very briefly and on the basis of harsh experience and equally harsh instruction. It is fitting for political parties in Britain, not only the Labour Party, but including the Labour Party, to challenge the inequity of this perpetual advance way beyond the average. But if any party is going to do that, they must understand that they will only secure change in that reality if the voters fully understand that making that change means favoring equity for the vast majority, well in excess of 90% of the population, that they will benefit and not be menaced by the radical change that will have to take place to affect the top 2%. Now, I have to tell you, unless and until that is done, any serious initiative to change that imbalance will be utterly misrepresented so that it looks like a danger, a peril to the breadth of income earners, and the result will be the disempowerment of the very forces that are seeking to achieve the objective of equity. How do I know that? <laughs> 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 <laughs>
So we still got to win the argument. I think clear hypothecation, as suggested by Tony, will certainly help, and there are some other measures. But whatever is planned, whatever is set out, whatever blueprint is shown to people who are anguished about the growth of this gap, we will still need to win a massive argument and to utterly convince a clear majority of people in this country that they are beneficiaries of the change and not menaced by the change. Now, if people are willing from the election of the new leader to gird their loins in that fashion and go into action confident in our values, prepared to acquaint themselves with our accomplishment, knowing what the challenges of the future are, let's get stuck into the fight. That's marvelous. But if you're not, if you sustain the habit of perpetual complaint, no matter how valid and justified, it doesn't matter. We, listen, this is a movement, and we've got to win as a movement, and that does involve acceptance of discipline and responsibility. Nobody has to tell the richest in our society that. They know it already. So let's get the word round to everybody else, the majority, so that we can sustain Labour government, which rules for the many, not the few. Well, how do, you, how do you follow that? Um, can I just, uh, before I lavish just a bit more adoration on Neil, um, can I say that Progress is a very democratic organisation? I pride myself on being a democratic chair. You have a very important decision to make now, which will be done through a show of hands. The choice is this. Would you like this meeting to end 10 minutes early or 10 minutes late? I have a sick child at home, no pressure, but... Uh, <laughs> Could I see a show of hands if you would be happy for the meeting to round up kind of now-ish? I was going to say, or or would you like the meeting to go on just a whole lot longer? Show of hands as well. Neil, it's your fault, goddammit. Okay, I tell you what, we'll have a compromise then. The third way is at my left shoulder. So the compromise is this. Um, Could I hear from the uh, three people in this auditorium who think they have the most succinct questions about the future. And if, it's not, if, they, if these questions are not succinct, dear God, I'm just going to get really, really angry. I'm afraid, Rachel, I can't have people I've already called. Um, I have the gentleman in the checked shirt at the back. Uh, Bob Van Cornbally Constituency, what do the panel think we can do to improve morale in the public services? Okay, improving around the public services. I have the lady uh, with her hand here uh, at the edge. And, oh, I'm just going to have to go with 
the girls. I'm sorry, but it's usually the boys. And then I'll, the third question will be that one there. And I'm sorry, everyone who I couldn't call. Um, yes. Kirsten Youngberg, thank you. Um, it was just about Europe, really. There was a piece in the newsletter that came out um, just this week from Progress about our position in Europe and how we've moved from um, it being negatively in the press all the time to a point where it's not discussed as much. Um, I'm wondering what the panel's opinion is on whether we're going to move towards a more positive articulation of um, both party policy and the government's role in Europe. Thank you for that question on Europe. And um, my, my question was really um, that Ed talked about the fact that there needs to be honesty and Neil said we need self-discipline. And I think in any relationship that's gone slightly wrong, you do need to talk, sure. Neil. Yep. Um, and I remember canvassing for you, and I, and, and I know ex I identify exactly with what you're saying, but I do think people need to, be ex to express what they're feeling. Yes. Okay. Um, I am now, I'm sorry, I'm even going to lower my, avert my gaze. I don't feel so guilty about the people that I haven't called. Um, God, so it's you lot again. All right. If you can be succinct or if you don't wish to speak, that's fine too. Um, Tony. Well, I better not tell another George Bush joke. Not enough time. <laughs> oh, go on. <laughs> well, I George, haven't told George, my George Bush. George joke. Bush and Dick Cheney go into this diner, right? <laughs> and um, the waitress comes, and George Bush says, "Hi, honey. How about a, how about a quickie?" And she runs away, all muttering about women's rights. And Dick Cheney turns to George Bush and says, "George, it's pronounced quiche." <laughs> Well, I'm just going to comment. Um, I'm just going to comment on the Europe question because a quickie, though. Because I also wrote a book on Europe quite recently. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> anyway, this is how I see the EU thing. First of all, I think it's really important that Gordon Brown becomes an effective leader in Europe. I think this is really important. So far. His statements about Europe have been rather pathetic. He's not very popular in EU circles at all because he hasn't gone to the meetings he should have gone to. But there's a new generation of leaders in Europe now, and I think Gordon Brown can and should be one of them. I think this is the first time that the EU could actually be a strength for Labour as compared to the Tories because Tories are in a deep fix about Europe, I think. There are so many Eurosceptics in the Tory party, so David Cameron on the one hand is saying let's make the environment our first priority. And on the other, he's saying Europe is rubbish. Well, how can you tackle the environment without the involvement of the EU, which you cannot tackle the environment as an individual nation? So I, I, I think one of the first problems with Gordon Brown will be what happens with the Constitution in Europe. He's going to surmount that. But I think one of the reasons why I think Sarkozy is not so bad is that he wants a mini-constitution, and I think that, that's what I want too. I want the important things that are in the Constitution passed so that Europe can function more effectively. They are single foreign minister, um, more majority governing in the council, and a president of the European Council who serves for two and a half years rather than for the ludicrous rotating six months. Those things would give uh, Europe more leadership. So, I, you know, I'm very pro-European, and I, I sort of cross my fingers and hope that Gordon Brown will be too. Thank you for that, Tony. Now, Neil, we have had your leadership speech. I felt I was on the platform at the Labour Party conference, but um, could you give us a couple of minutes on Europe? Sure. Um, I, I can give you a couple of seconds, actually. I agree with much of what Tony said, except that it's not true to say that uh, Gordon Brown has absented himself from meetings. 
What he has done is to manifest impatience and disturbance when he's listened to the same old stuff being ground out in council meeting after council meeting, and he has thrown to drop his pen, to sit back, to stare at the ceiling and things like this. Now, I have to say that is not the personal conduct that one would advise diplomatically, <laughs> but I don't think it's one that's going to lose us a hell of a lot of votes. On the contrary, when Gordon concentrates on the biggest single and most important contribution that he's made to modern Europe, that is to say the strongest proponent of the Lisbon agenda for employment and competitiveness, he has enormous strength. And I think that as Prime Minister, when he does that with great emphasis and insistence, the consequence will be a movement in support for and popularity of the United Kingdom as a source of greater influence on the future direction of the European Union. I'm confident that that will occur on the Constitution. Tony's, of course, dead right. I argued from the outset we should have a book of rules, not a bloody telephone directory. And uh, uh, the first time that uh, the telephone directory was put to a substantive vote, it provided maximum opportunities for distortion and misrepresentation by just about every mischief maker in uh, the countries that had the referendum. Same would have happened in this country. Not that we needed a referendum. There is no change in government proposed even by the telephone directory, and in this country we have referenda when a change in the system of government is proposed, not take refuge in it for pop populist reasons. Thank you. Um, can I just say, we've had Europe answered. We're looking for answers. I'm taking answers, hoping to get answers on uh, public sector workers and honesty versus discipline. Uh, Mandy. I'd like to take honesty versus discipline. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I would like to say that honesty is, yes, very important, and there should be a forum for us to have discussions, for us to be honest with each other, but not to a stage where we start to destroy each other, where we don't start to destroy our movement. We have an opportunity when we elect our new leader and our new deputy leader to regroup, to look at what has happened over the past 10 years, but more importantly, look at where we are going to go in the next 10 years. That is our opportunity to unite. That doesn't mean to say we don't have to be honest about what has happened. Honesty is very important, but so is self-discipline. We must unite together and go forward, and that's how we'll get, as, as Neil Kinnock has just said, another 10 years in power. And Ed? That leaves me with public services. Um, look, I think, let me say to the gentleman who asked the question, I think this is one of the big tasks that we faced, uh, which is particularly in the health service, to win back uh, the support, particularly of the staff uh, in the health service. I think one thing that Gordon Brown or whoever the next leader is shouldn't do is embark on a massive reorganisation of our public services uh, because I think what we've learned is that reforms, however necessary, um, can uh, cause uh, staff and others... Um, to, to, to lose morale and, and, and to, to, to not uh, and to not be with you. That isn't to say the reforms weren't right, but I think it's to say that we have a massive job to do uh, in winning people back. Um, because look, let's be honest about this: the health service, to take the specific, is far far better than it was uh, ten years ago in all kinds of ways. We put in massive investment. 
I believe that investment has made a big difference. But at the moment, the public don't believe it, and uh, some people in the profession don't believe it. And so I think, I think part of it is some organisational stability. It partly goes back to the empathy I was uh, talking about and really listening to the staff who are actually working in the public services as a start. Oh, well, I think we'll give you a round of applause anyway. <laughs> Ed, thank you for that. And uh, finally, Stephen. Thanks, Una. Una said, if I come to you last, will you say something nice and rousing? So I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. Inspiring. Inspiring, blimey. The challenge is all more enormous. I mean, I think the, the last question around honesty and self-discipline, I think it is an important balance that we have to strike. I mean, Neil, I joined the Labour Party in 1982, and I remember those battles as Neil took on the militant, as Neil remodelled the Labour Party through the 80s and the early 90s. And I don't think anyone in the Labour Party could want to go back to those days of the early 1980s of internal division, obsession with our differences, and then that manifesto that was so overwhelmingly rejected by people. But equally, as Ed said, the kind of model that worked for 97 isn't the right way of doing things now. It has made a lot of people switch off politics. We need that honesty. We need that change in style and tone that Ed has talked about. We need to engage with people. So yes, I still think, as I and others said at the beginning, we should celebrate the very, very real and substantial achievements of this past 10 years. The media won't do that, so we need to do that. But we also have to recognise we've made mistakes, we haven't got everything right, we need an honest debate about those questions. But most importantly, whether we've done the right things or the wrong things, we won't win next time on the basis of our record. We win next time by convincing people that we have the offer that they will want to vote for. And frankly, I think with Gordon Brown, we have a figure of great substance and experience who has every ability to defeat David Cameron, but it isn't just about personalities, it's also about values, what we stand for, what we believe in, and if we can root our offer next time in those values of greater equality, of social justice, of a better society, then I think we can see not just a 10 years to look back on and celebrate, but an incredible, unprecedented, historic fourth term of Labour government led by Gordon Brown, and one that I think all of us, whatever our differences in debate and discussion, can celebrate and work hard to achieve in however many years' time Gordon calls that election. Let's work together to achieve that, as well as having those debates. Well, I'd like to thank the panel for that. I'm really sorry that I'm just going to squeeze in one true story about George Bush uh, before we leave. I have been quite restrained. I haven't given you an opinion on anything so far. Let me give you an opinion on George Bush. Um, did you know that 10 weeks before he ordered the invasion, he had a meeting with three Iraqi dissidents to ask them their views of how things would be in a, post, uh, a post-war in Iraq without Saddam Hussein? It slowly became clear to, the, these, to these three dissidents when they were talking about problems with the Sunnis and the Shias that George Bush did not know what the Sunnis and the Shias were nor that they existed and they had to spend the first 20 meetings of 20 minutes of the meeting uh, I'm doing a George Bush it's been a long day uh, they had to spend the first 20 minutes of the meeting explaining to George Bush that Islam has two major sects I mean, that's a bit like Tony Blair thinking he's going to sort out Northern Ireland and going, oh, and who are the Catholics and the Protestants? So 
I think that puts in perspective um, what some of the some of the reasons we have the catastrophe and the quagmire we have in Iraq. I think we do need to make a, a 180 degree uh, turn about from our uh, you know the links that we have to uh, George Bush, but. The best way to do that and to consider your views on Iraq, overwhelmingly negative though they no doubt are, is to ensure that you are a member of Progress so that you hear more of these debates. Are any of you not a member of Progress? All right, you don't have to put your hands up, but it's only less than two, it's less than two pounds a month. Come on. I'm trying to avoid saying £20 a year because actually that sounds a bit much to me. But no, it is less <laughs> It is less than £2 a month. So I really hope you will um, join Progress. If you haven't done so already, you were given a membership form when you came in. Um, our next event, the Deputy uh, Leadership Hustings, next Wednesday, is unfortunately sold out. But I just thought I'd mention it anyway, um, which is why you should join because you'll know more about it in advance next time. But there are still places available on our final final three first 100-day seminars, which ask you for your ideas around what Labour's next Prime Minister should do in his first 100 days. If you didn't get the opportunity today to put your uh, questions to us, please do so um, for that event. And speakers uh, confirmed include Jack Straw, uh, oh, Stephen Twigg, that's good, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> uh, Jonathan Friedland and others. You can also see the Progress uh, website uh, to register. Thank you once again very much for coming, and could we just give the panel a final appreciative hand? Thank you.